Romans chapter 8, the movie Hoosiers came out in 1986, and I was in ninth grade, and the movie Hoosiers, of course, is about the team from Hickory, Indiana, that won the state championship, defied all of the odds against it, the high school basketball championship, and it was a great movie, and every high school boy that played basketball during the late 80s. We all thought that our team from our little school, wherever that may be, was going to be the next Hoosiers basketball team. Now, many of the coaches as well thought that they were Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman was the head coach. Incredible performance in the movie Hoosiers. Many times the head coaches, you know, that I had not so much, uh, but my head coach in uh, high school, I remember he kind of was caught up in Hoosier's fever as well, and we're back in a, you know, a back classroom or whatever, strategizing and you know, going over the pregame plan, and we weren't in a locker room because we didn't have a real locker room, so we're in this back classroom, and he just got kind of caught up in the moment, and he said, this is just like Hoosier's basketball. You know, you've got the crowd out there and the cheerleaders, and we're like, not so much, not so much. Um, but we all had this dream of defying the odds and experiencing a miracle and becoming the next state champions. And my junior year, we won the games we should have won that year, and we lost most of the games that we should have lost. We pulled a couple of nice upsets, and then came the state tournament. And if you've seen the movie, The Hoosiers, if you've seen this movie, you know that at the championship game, Gene Hackman, the actor playing the head coach, he brings them all out into this massive uh, gym in Indianapolis. They never played in a gym, in a field house this large, in a stadium this large. And so he has a couple of them bring a tape measure out, right? And he measures from one end to the other. And he says, you know, how many feet is that? And he says, that's exactly the same number of feet back in our uh, little gym in Hickory. And then he measures from the floor to the top of the rim. And sure enough, it's 10 feet. Now, I think every single head coach that year did that same exact illustration. Only this one didn't really work out that well because we were in our home court when he did it. So we're at our home court and he's measuring it and we're like, what does this even mean? Um, and when we finally got to Newark High School and played Newark High School, I think they had actually lowered the rims for Newark High School. Um, they weren't exactly 10 feet because they gave us the biggest spanking, I mean, I don't know how to say it, they crushed us, they annihilated us. I still remember the final score was 120 to 43. We were embarrassed. My two little brothers, they were probably 12 and 14 at the time. My brother Dan, he's a pastor, he told me later that he and Mark were sitting in the stands with their friends and they were rooting for the other team because they were hoping that the other team would slam dunk more and more because it was so entertaining. The longing of my heart was to compete and win the state championship. So then came my senior year, and so that summer of 1988, I did everything I possibly could to improve. 
everything I possibly could to improve my vertical jump. I wanted to improve my vertical jump so that I could slam dunk it the way that the Newark high school players were slam dunking it. And so I would go outside every day and I would stand at the bottom of the basketball pole and I would jump up and touch the backboard 25 times, you know, and then I would go lift weights and then I would practice the piano. I was a weird kid. Um, and so I continued through natural means. I went to the park and I played with guys better than me. I got a mentor. A guy who was in college, he introduced me to some other college players. I played against them. And I improved my vertical jump by about four inches. And that was not nearly enough. We didn't even make the state tournament my senior year. Why didn't it work out? Why didn't we achieve the miracle, achieve the dream? Because physical training is just that. It's physical, it's fleshly, it's from the realm of the natural. It's subjected to natural law. I was subjected to natural law. I was subjected to my gene pool when it came to basketball, to my strength that I already had or didn't have, to gravity, you know, things like that, to my natural instincts and natural ability or lack thereof. I was limited by the natural realm. The natural realm wasn't going to help us compete against Newark High School. We could play them a hundred times and we would lose a hundred times. In fact, they would probably beat us worse and worse every single time. I needed a miracle. I needed a supernatural realm to live in. There was no team of destiny. You have to be good to be a team of destiny, and we were no good. So I needed a supernatural touch. I mean, what I needed was for a miracle worker to come to town, you know, a guy who could raise the dead, and bring limbs back, you know, a legit guy, and for him to lay his hands on my legs and enable me to jump another one and a half feet, not four inches. I needed a supernatural intervention. We were limited, we were capped, we were stopped by the natural, and the only thing that could have possibly helped us would have been the supernatural. Are you living in the natural realm or in the supernatural realm. You may be thinking, I'm doing okay living in the realm of the natural. We'll get to that in a minute, what that means. I'm pretty happy. I mean, are you truly happy? Will it last? Will it last another 10 years, your happiness? 10 days, 10 minutes. What about when suffering hits? I mean the real hard stuff of life. Look at verse 18, Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, that is the realm of the natural, are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. That's the realm 
of the supernatural. There's always two ways in Scripture. I've told you this before. There's the way of the wise, the way of the fool. There's the way of light. There's the way of darkness. There's the way of being others-oriented and being self-centered. There's the narrow way, and there's the wide way. There's being a son of wrath and being a son of righteousness, a son of glory. There's always two ways. We can live in the natural or we can live in the realm of the supernatural. Verse 5, go back to verse 5. We see this again there. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's the natural realm. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's the supernatural realm. It sounds so lofty, I mean so mysterious, even spooky, living in the realm of the supernatural in the here and now, in this moment. What is that exactly? It's living in what we call the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. Look at verse 24. Paul unpacks this for us. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Verse 24, the already. Verse 25, the not yet. Living in the realm of the supernatural is living in both. The already and the not yet. What does that even mean? The already is this. Jesus has already won the victory. He's won the victory. He redeemed us. He purchased us. We were pardoned. It is finished. He defeated the power of sin, the powers of darkness. We are free from the power of the law, we are free from the bondage of sin, from slavery. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died the death that we could have never died. He spent an eternity in hell, and he rose from the dead. It is finished. That's the already. He won the victory. It's already accomplished. He made a way where there was no way. That's the already. The not yet is the fact that we are still here. We're still here. We're simultaneously, Luther said, sinner and saint. We're both at one time. Now, between us and God, we are not a sinner. We're a saint. It's already been accomplished. When he looks on us, he doesn't see a sinner. He doesn't see that. He sees his son's perfect righteousness. It is finished. There's total assurance there. If it were up to us, we would definitely lose our salvation. If it were up to us. If it were up to me, I definitely would lose my salvation, but it's not up to me. He holds us in the palm of his hand, in his grip. He is the one who initiates salvation. He is the one who preserves us until the end. That's why we cannot lose our salvation. It is finished. It is accomplished. Total assurance. But we're still sinners horizontally. 
And living in a fallen world, we live in the already and the not yet at the same time. We live in the already, we long for the not yet. We sang about the not yet earlier. We long for heaven. We long for the day when faith will be sight, when there will be no more crying or pain, no more broken relationships, no more broken hearts, no more depression, no more chronic pain, no more marriage problems, no more wayward children, no more lackluster worship, no more broken hearts. We long for that day. We sang an earlier triumphant praises without end all hailing the king of righteousness, and every eye beholds the one, our hearts were undeserving with a grace so glorious. Oh, the glory of the Savior's love surrounding our surrender to know forever we are welcomed home with Jesus like Jesus. That's the not yet, and we long for that day. And that's what Paul says in verse 19. Look at 19. The whole creation waits in eager expectation. Verse 22, he takes it further and says, the whole creation has been groaning. Verse 23, we groan, what a choice of words, inwardly. We groan living in the realm of the supernatural is living in the already and the not yet. Simultaneously, let's bring it down out of the clouds and let's make it practical if we can. What does it look like to live in the realm of the supernatural? You know, when we gather together, when we do what we're doing right now, worshiping God, singing, receiving communion, hearing the word of God preached, fellowshipping with one another, we are part of that groaning of creation, of that eager expectation. I love, 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 love that we are not the frozen chosen. I love it. I love coming to worship. I love the way different people in the congregation worship. Some, just a little tear might come out their eye and nothing else moves. You would never know that it's deeply touching them emotionally. Others are more vocal. There's a sense of groaning among our congregation when we worship together. It's alive, crying out to God, We're joining with the stars and the mountains and the hills, singing praises to God. They don't join with us, we join with them. They're already praising. The whole creation, Paul says, is groaning in eager expectation. You can see it all around you. It's groaning in expectation. Paul said we should be longing to see what will happen next. Longing to see what will happen next. Longing for the not yet, living in the already, craning our necks, so to speak, looking to see, standing on our tiptoes, looking to see what will happen next, eagerly awaiting, eager anticipation, expectation. Is that you? Subjected to futility, Paul says. He says it was subjected to the curse, to futility by God. 
because of sin. So we look around, we see creation. It's not what it was meant to be. It still has incredible glory. We still see God's creativity through it, but it's been marred because of sin. It's been marred because of sin. Creation was made to praise God. How can you live in the supernatural? By doing what you're doing right now. By not giving up on meeting together, on coming together, whether you feel like it or not, whether you feel like worshiping or not, whether you like a song or don't like a song, whether it's too loud or too soft, whether, you know, it's your style or not your style, I think many times it shouldn't be our style. We should be challenged and stretched and ready to encourage others and defer to others in that way. That's what we do here on Sundays. It's so important. We are groaning together. Jarring word, but that's what he uses. Sometimes that's what our singing sounds like. Groaning. I was standing in between um, Lee Geisler, our executive director, and Sam Osborne, who was one of our principals at one of our schools. It was for graduation. It was right down there. Lee on one side, Sam on the other, and we're singing a hymn, and I couldn't really sing because of the noise next to me on either side. And I looked at both of them, I said, you guys are the worst singers I've ever heard, ever. You know, can't carry a tune. It was groaning though, it was a beautiful, beautiful sound to God, I guess. <laughs> Psalm 96, 11, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. All the trees will sing, that's what it says, for joy before the Lord. For he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness, gathering in worship, groaning in worship, joining with creation in worship is living in the realm of the supernatural. Worship is a glorious time to celebrate the radiance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to come together and celebrate what Jesus has done for us, to celebrate nothing but Jesus, and to be centered on him. We get a taste of heaven when we join together. Heaven comes down and meets earth here. Why would we want to miss that? I want to encourage you. I saw a poll the other day, or a study the other day, one of the largest denominations in our country, the Southern Baptist denomination, one of the most conservative, one of the most kind of faithful theologically, 16 million members. Out of those 16 million members, how many do you think attend church every single week? Half? I mean, that would be terrible. Six million, less than half. We're going down, down, down when it comes to meeting together faithfully. For decades, theologians have used the analogy of the end of World War II, okay, to illustrate this idea, this theological concept of the already and the not yet. And the whole idea is that on D-Day, when the Allied forces stormed the beaches of, of Normandy, that was essentially, that was when the war was pretty much won, D-Day. But then there was mop-up battles and things that happened, and V-Day was a ways off. 
And so you had D-Day and V-Day. So D-Day, theologians will say, D-Day is when Jesus won the victory on the cross. V-Day is when we're in heaven with him finally. The already, the not yet, we live in that tension. There were still battles to be fought. When we come to worship, V-Day comes into the present with us. We celebrate. We celebrate with the heavenly host joining us. When you aren't here, listen, you're like this guy. I feel so bad for this guy. His name was Hiro Onada. How many of you have heard of Hiro Onada? Anyone here? Look him up. You can probably look him up right now and fact check me. I checked it out. It's legit. I can't tell stories anymore because you can look him up online and fact check me. He was a Japanese imperial intelligence officer. Big title. He fought for the uh, Japanese forces in World War II. And he was a holdout when World War II ended in 1945. He was a holdout. He held out in the jungle, get this, for 29 years. He's in the jungle in the Philippines. For 29 years, he doesn't know, doesn't accept that the war is over. That means that was through the Korean War, that was through the Vietnam War. Two years after I was born, 1974, it took his commanding officer to go to him and to tell him that the war had been won. He lived with three other soldiers and they carried out operations together, did some guerrilla warfare. Think about the life they missed. When we don't come to worship, we're like those holdouts in the jungle. Doing what? Living in the realm of the natural is an obsession with self. It's an obsession with busyness, with idolizing our kids, with idolizing even their activities over worship, giving up meeting together for worship, we can get a taste of the supernatural every time we gather for worship, and don't we need it? Some of you are hurting so badly this morning. Some of you, are, I mean, you found out about difficult things this past week with your job. Some of you are searching for a job. Some of you have disease. Some of you are depressed. Some of you had to take a pill before you came here just to be able to get through the service. Some of you have wayward children. Some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you are new to our church and you're still trying to fit in and meet people. Some of you might have just come on off the street. You're like, these people are nuts. Um, we need each other. Even if you don't need to be here, you do need to be here, but if you don't think you, you're singing for somebody else maybe to encourage that other person. What are we waiting for? What are we longing for? Look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul says we're longing for the revealing of the sons of God. I thought we said last week that we were already adopted as sons and daughters of God. I thought that's what he said. So now he's saying, you know, which one is it? Are we going to be revealed later or are we already in? This is the already, 
and a not yet. Verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received. That word is so strong, received. It means once for all. It means it is finished. It means you're in. It means you've been adopted that nothing can mess this up. Not even you, your sin, nothing can mess it up. That's what that received words means, the spirit of adoption. So the word received means once for all time. That's the already. We said last week that our adoption into God's family is the apex of all the doctrines in Scripture. If we don't get that, we don't get anything. That we are sons and daughters of God, it isn't something you can lose. If we could lose our salvation, I said it earlier, as humans, we would do it. We would give it away, throw it away, if it were up to us. Thankfully, it's not. We don't adopt ourselves God adopts us into his family. So what's going on here? Verse 19 says, we're waiting for the sons to be revealed. Stay with me. Verse 15 says, we're already adopted. Already, verse 15, not yet, verse 19. This doctrine of adoption is so rich, we have to get it. Let's try to grasp this idea of being adopted once and being revealed later, because it's amazing. It's incredible. And you're gonna need it this week to be encouraged. Joseph was an Old Testament figure. He was the son of Jacob. He was sold into slavery by his 10 older, jealous brothers, thrown into a pit. He's in Egypt, and 22 years later, 22 years later, Joseph has been falsely arrested for sexual assault. He's been in prison. He's faced all kinds of hardships, but yet he has risen to second in command in Egypt. And there's a famine in the land, and he's responsible to oversee the recovery due to the famine. His 10 jealous brothers thought he was dead. His 10 jealous older brothers come to Egypt to kind of beg, work something out, they need food. Beg for food, beg for mercy. And they meet with Joseph, but they, they're sitting with him at dinner and they don't know that Joseph is their brother Joseph. He's sitting there with them, presiding, and they don't realize that this royalty in front of them is their brother. They left for dead. Joseph eventually reveals, there it is, himself to his brothers. And they see his position. They see his glory. They see their brother. He's revealed to them. He was already second in command. They knew that. But they didn't know he was their brother. But he was still their brother. It had to be revealed to them. This was concealed from the 10 jealous older brothers until Joseph revealed himself. It's the same thing here. We are already sons of God. We are already princes, princesses, but eventually we will be revealed. 
as sons of God. The glory in us will be revealed. Living in the already, we, we inwardly groan. I mean, we groan at our own sin, at our own weakness, at our own inconsistencies. We groan to be free from that, from broken relationships, from bad marriages, from issues in our lives. We, we groan. I mean, I know you've done that. Paul says we wait for glory to be revealed. When? When will this glory be revealed? When we are with Jesus and like Jesus. With Jesus and like Jesus. What will be revealed? This is so lofty. C.S. Lewis is very helpful. C.S. Lewis said, we don't have a soul. We are a soul. We have a body. We're a soul. We have a body. What is he saying? When we say we have a soul and glory will be revealed, what does that even mean? C.S. Lewis continues, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. Remember that the next time you get fired up over something on TV, politics, whatever. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Listen, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Every person you meet. When we live in the realm of the supernatural, we'll start seeing others around us as one of those two things. We'll start seeing others around us as souls. We'll start seeing others around us as divine creations, as partaking of the divine nature, not as flesh, not as bodies, but as souls, as the holiest possible thing you can encounter here on earth is your brother, is your sister. C.S. Lewis said, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. That means we need each other. You need friends in the church. Living in the realm of the natural means living in isolation, living on Netflix, living on social media, Living in the supernatural is face-to-face, being face-to-face with other souls. Over the next year, we're going to be launching a huge effort to launch a, a lots of new small groups, lots of new reach groups. These are small groups in homes, and to get as many as possible into these groups because we need each other. Not just because we need each other, but because this person sitting across from you is a son or a daughter of the Most High God. And there is glory being revealed in them now and ultimately to be revealed in them that you need in your life. If there was just one other human being on this planet and you were the other one and that person had Jesus, you would want to sit at their feet and glean from their soul. The Holy Spirit lives inside of that person. They are supernatural in some ways. They are in union with Jesus Christ himself. Living in the realm of the supernatural is living in community with others. 
I mean how. Look at 8.26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You ever felt that way? I mean, prayer is the realm of the supernatural, praying. That's what shows you what kind of faith you have if you really believe that it's real. You know, prayer, speaking into thin air, is what it feels like sometimes. Paul says we don't know how to pray, but the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. How? We don't know how to pray. Many times we sigh, we struggle, we even groan in prayer and say, Lord, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to pray for myself, for my family, for those around me who are hurting. I don't know how to pray. I remember when uh, Tyler, our worship leader, first became our youth pastor. It was so clear to Melanie and I that God had supernaturally brought Tyler and Gwen Schoenberger into our lives, into the church life at the right time. It was right before I became the lead pastor here. There was way more great things happening in the church than bad things, but there was a few hurtful things happening. Some people exiting our lives that just shocked us and it was a little hurtful. Way more great things. But then Tyler and Gwen came just at the right time. And so many others as well, so many of you. And yet, as we prayed for Tyler, the morning that we presented him to the congregation, we stood on this stage, we presented him as our youth director, and all across the stage were all the youth leaders, and I'm standing in the center of the stage. And I was praying for him in front of the congregation. And as I began praying, I couldn't get any words out. I was overcome with emotion. I mean, I literally could not speak. Just ready to sob in front of everyone because I was so overwhelmed by the love of Christ that was being shown and poured out to me, to us. And as I'm standing here and as I couldn't get a word out, there was youth leaders walking up behind me, laying hands on me, saying, we've got you, we're here, we love you. They were praying for me. They were praying the words that I couldn't pray because the Holy Spirit is inside of them. I didn't know what to pray. The Holy Spirit's always interceding for us, but listen, here's the practical. When you're involved in friendships and small groups and things like that and you're praying together, that other person, that soul, that person who's partaking of what Peter calls the divine nature, that person fills in the gaps when it comes to prayer. They can pray for you in ways that you can't even articulate. We need that. It's amazing how God does that. It was amazing yesterday. Um, we're part of 
the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, and we have a, a local presbytery where we belong to the local presbytery, and we go through a process called licensure to preach and ordination to become a pastor. It's an incredibly difficult process. It takes many, many years. Um, and so Tyler has been going through that process, and he's in the first step of licensure. And so he came before our committee. I'm on that committee, so I was able to sit there, and I was ready to rescue him at any moment if I needed to. But I didn't need to. I didn't say a word because he just knocked it out of the park at our committee. And then yesterday, he stood before our presbytery in this tiny little church in Newcastle. And this guy who felt a call into the ministry, who stood on this stage, who's led our youth, who's led our music, who's led several international missions trips for us, he stood before the presbytery because many of you interceded for him in prayer and he knocked it out of the park again, and he passed his licensure test. He is now licensed to preach. <laughs> Living in the realm of the natural is every man for himself. Living in the realm of supernatural means you're in community. Jesus said in John 17, I want you to be one. I want you to be one, just as I and my heavenly Father are one. That same intimacy between the Son and the Father, he said, I want that for the church. I want that for you. I want to be one. Living in the realm of the supernatural means tapping into the holy souls around you. You've never met a mere mortal when you consider Paul's words about sons, about daughters, and the glory to be revealed in us that we are not mere mortals. There's applications in marriage, in the way we treat each other. Men, your wife is no mere mortal. She is a daughter of the Most High God. She's a daughter of the Most High God. Women, young girls, young teens, when you're out on a date with that young man, he is a son of the most high God if he has Christ. That Christian who doesn't think the way that you do, who pushes all your wrong buttons, who doesn't seem to get it the way you do is no mere mortal. They are a son, a daughter with glory waiting to be revealed in them. They are not bodies, they are souls. Your children do not belong to you. My children do not belong to me. They are souls. Living in the natural is every man for himself, is getting my way, is self-centeredness. Living in the supernatural is seeing the supernatural in others and tapping into it. Living in the supernatural means being supernatural. It means using your supernatural, superhero strength, your power that's been given to each one of you. It's called a spiritual gift. It's given to you not to hide, not to keep for yourself. It's given to you to build up the church, to encourage others. Verse 28, we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We tend to focus in this verse on God taking care of us, and he does. He takes care especially of his people in the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. 
But look at the last part. Those called according to his purpose, each one of us is called. We are called to tap in to that unique superhero power, that spiritual gift that each one of us has in our lives. We all have one. We all have a supernatural one. Not a natural one, a spiritual one, a superpower, a spiritual gift, Romans 12. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts, there it is, that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. It's called a spiritual gift because we aren't left on our own. It's spiritual. It's from the Holy Spirit. It arrives from the Holy Spirit, and he helps us use our spiritual gift. The word helper in John 14, that he will send us a helper. It's a 17-letter Greek word that is so rich in meaning. It means the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us. That we're in this together, the Holy Spirit says, I will give you grace, especially in your weak spots. In fact, my power is made perfect in your weakness. So the very thing that you don't think you're good at may be indeed your spiritual gift. That's totally counter to the world that says focus on your strengths, not your weaknesses. My grace is made perfect, but we have to step up and use that gift. The old saying, let go and let God, in this case, is totally unbiblical. We partner with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes alongside us and partners with us. I've told you this before. Every time I do this, it's the Holy Spirit partnering with me, speaking through me. It's not me up here. It's not at all, but I still prepare, I still study, I still write things out. I don't let go and let God, or I'll stink up here. I get on it, and the Holy Spirit comes alongside and gives me grace, especially in the weak spots. You know, you may be thinking our gift isn't speaking to others about Jesus. Wrong. Matthew 28 Jesus gives the great commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's for every single one of us, telling others our story. When we don't do that, we're living in the realm of the natural instead of the supernatural. Think of the story that we have to tell. Think of this story in Romans 8 that we have to share with others. Paul says creation is groaning and that we are groaning, that we are called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? Jesus gave it to us. Go into the world and preach the gospel. Preach me. Preach nothing but Jesus. I want to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul said to share our faith. Isaiah 55 said the mountains and hills will sing. The trees will clap their hands. Paul says creation is waiting eagerly to break forth in celebration. How amazing is the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
How amazing is it every time we have a political election, I notice that the hills and the mountains aren't singing. How pathetic are our human, natural realm gospels? They have no ultimate answers. They bring temporal hope, if that. Paul says in verse 24, that kind of hope and what we can see is no hope at all. Because we can see it. It's void of the supernatural, void of the Holy Spirit. The gospel of Jesus Christ transforms us because it matches the yearnings of our hearts perfectly. That's the message we have to share with others. That's how we share our faith with others and make others disciples, make others into superheroes with spiritual gifts, serving the body, building up the church, spreading the gospel. God looks at us and he says, your present sufferings, the already, the natural, are not worth comparing to my purpose that I have for you, my plans for you, for the glory I'm going to show forth in you. Who else can say that to us? No one. Someone can teach us how to cope with suffering. Someone can teach us how to escape from suffering to some extent. Can we really, truly go to anyone who can say that the suffering that we experience, and Paul experienced incredible suffering, is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. No, we cannot. This is something so amazing, so supernatural and incredible that it's not worth comparing to your present suffering. That's an awesome message to share with others. Paul says, I've done the math. I've weighed out the present sufferings. He was whipped. He was shipwrecked. He was spoken illy about. He was sick. He was in prison. So many horrible things. Eventually, he was beheaded. And he said, I've weighed it out. I've weighed the natural up against the glory that's to be revealed in us, the supernatural. And not only does the glory not even be worthy to be compared to the natural, but you can't even do it. You can't even weigh it. Game over is what he says. You know, when you have one team that's way better than another team in sports, what do we always say? You still have to play the game. Not in this case. The game's over before it's even played. What a huge statement about the smallness of our present sufferings. Or is it more of a statement about the bigness of our future glory? The things of the natural, I mean, they're tough. Our present cancer, our present financial issues, relational breakdowns, Paul still says they're not worth comparing to the supernatural that will be the glory revealed in us. The glory revealed in us makes our small thinking inexcusable. It makes us big risk takers. Largeness of vision, a big hope, gaining ground for the kingdom. That's the realm of the supernatural. Are you living in the realm of the natural or of the supernatural? Let's pray together. I just want to talk to you for a minute more 
while everyone's in a season of prayer. First, I want to encourage you. We talked about gathering. We talked about worship. And tonight, we have a glorious opportunity to come back together, to worship together. Why would we want to miss that opportunity? So I want to encourage you to take part in that. But I also want to issue a call. I want to issue a call to those of you who know Jesus already. Are you like that Japanese officer in the jungle? It's kind of mired in stuff that doesn't matter. Your own little world. Not really paying attention to all this supernatural talk. Not realizing that the war has been won and not being a part of it. Not really being a part of community in a church, friendship, not really using your gift. I'm not trying to shame us because there's many different ways for us to use our gifts. There's many different ways for us to be in community. I'm trying to encourage us that it's, it's so important. I wanna challenge you to just go before the Lord this week and, and challenge yourself in those questions that we raised. And if you don't yet know Jesus, if you're far from God, are you like the Japanese officer in the jungle? Same idea. Not knowing or not accepting that the war was won. Come out. Come out. Come out into the light. Turn to Jesus. Hebrews tells us he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. If you would just pray, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I believe in you. I believe. Help my unbelief. Be the Lord. Be the Savior of my life. Just that prayer.